Uh, as we continue to work our way through the book of Daniel, it's important to remember that the book of Daniel is designed to answer two questions. How do we live in a foreign land and how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? And I'm going to keep repeating these questions week after week because they're important. They're the questions we need answered as we figure out how to live out our faith in this city, in this modern context, amidst the pressures that push against our faith. As we've journeyed through the book and tried to find answers to these questions, so far Daniel has been front and center, right? But now it shifts. The, the, the shift of the book focuses in this chapter on his three friends who are named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But you might remember in chapter one, they get new names when they move to Babylon. And now their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you might be familiar because the song we just sang, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Shad, that's going to be in your head for months. Uh, and even if you've never heard that song, if you've grown up in the church or have been raised in Western culture, you've heard about this fiery furnace story. Whether you've looked at it closely or not, most of us have some sort of memory about this passage. What I want to highlight then right away is something easily overlooked. The passage only refers to them by their Babylonian names. Their new Babylonian identity is stressed. They have to live as Babylonians now, not as Israelites. At least that's Nebuchadnezzar's agenda. He wants total assimilation into the ways of Babylon. And yet, these young men, they're in exile. They've been given new names. They even are employed in the king's service. They've not lost who they are. They will not be fully assimilated into the culture around them. They have a faith, who defines who they, a faith that defines who they are and a faith that teaches them how to live in the midst of Babylon. And what we discover in our passage is that faith is never without its troubles. In fact, the real faith demonstrated in this passage assures us that we're going to face trials and struggles. And that's the gist of what I want to explore this morning. God gives us a faith that can endure and even flourish in fiery trials. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel. You can crack it open to Daniel. If you don't own a Bible, please grab one of the gray Bibles on your way out and take it home with you. Uh, everything will be on the screen, as always. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 13 because it's a summary of everything that's happened so far in this chapter. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar is prone to anger. We already know this. You might remember in our passage Last week, he had threatened that all the enchanters and magicians and wise men and uh, uh, Chaldeans, they're going to be wiped off from the face of Babylon because the king had an unreasonable request. He said, I've been having this dream night after night, and I want you to tell me what I have dreamt. He said, it's impossible. But then God reveals the dream to Daniel and the interpretation. And Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, oh, king, here's the dream. You dreamt of a statue uh, and the head was gold, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And it turns out he really took this to heart. And this is 
where we read in the opening verse of this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. You, O king, are the head of gold. Apparently that wasn't enough. Instead, he builds a 90-foot statue of gold. Almost 10 stories. Yes, it sounds like he was compensating. But once again, this is Babel. We need to see this. This is Babel. Long before Babylon, the people of that ancient city said this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. See, now instead of a tower, Nebuchadnezzar builds an image. And he builds it to try to unify all of Babylon around the worship of this image. And he also builds it to make a name for himself. Now, it's not clear if this image depicted the likeness of the king or is crafted after one of the Babylonian gods or if it's just abstract art. And it doesn't really matter because it was a symbol. It was a symbol of your allegiance to Babylon and its culture and its ways and especially to the king. And to dedicate this new image, he gathers all the important people of Babylon for a dedication ceremony, a press release, right? You've got governors and judges and officials and important people. And then he sets up an orchestra around this image, and then he issues a decree. He says, when you hear the music, fall down on your face and worship. The music starts to play, and then people immediately fall down on their faces and start to worship. But in the Hebrew, it's almost like a Pavlonian response. Pavlov, right? Trained dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell. In the same way, these people uncritically received the decree of the king. It's almost like this automated response. If the king says worship, we worship. They don't question it. They don't push back against it. And as the king surveys the plains of Dura, people are flat on their faces. His agenda seems to be working. Except the Chaldeans. The very people Daniel saved in the last chapter rat on his friends. They point out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they won't do it. They're not worshiping. And this is what throws Nebuchadnezzar into another fit of rage. And so they're dragged before the king, and the king says, is it true? Is it true that you're not worshiping? Now, when you hear the sound of all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image, very good. Now, let's remember, Babylon was a multi-ethnic, multinational, pluralistic city. So essentially what the king is saying is this. I'm not asking that you worship the Babylonian gods instead of your God, but in addition to your God. In private, you can worship whatever God you want, but in public, bow down to the image. You can worship your God as long as you worship ours too. In other words, and this should sound familiar, Privatize your faith. Privatize your faith. You can have your faith if it's something that helps you and makes you feel better about life, but so long as you're out here in my world, you'll put it aside and you'll bow down, you'll worship the, the image, you'll play by my rules. You see, whether it's Babylon or Rome or Vancouver, the pressure is always the same. All the great pluralistic cities of the ages say you can privately worship whatever you want, but in public... You need to assimilate. You need to become like us. You need to adopt our values as ultimate and put yours in the back seat. But the reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can't bow down is actually really simple. 
It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not have uh, false images and you shall not bow down to the idols or worship them. Now, idols isn't language we use, but an idol is anything more important to you than God. An idol is anything more important to you than God. For them, the idol is a statue of gold. And if they worship it, it means that Babylon is of more importance to them than their allegiance to the God of the universe. That's what it would mean. That's why they can't do it. But in our cultural moment, idols take on less tangible shapes, but they're just as real. You might not have a statue in front of you, but you better believe there are idols. An idol, again, is anything more important to us than God. Here's a quick diagnostic of if you, if you want to really ask the difficult question, am I worshiping an idol in any capacity? What is the thing in your life if it crumbled, if you no longer had it, that would cause you to say, my, wife, my life is no longer worth living. There's no more value to my life. I can't see how there would be any meaning. What is the thing, if it crumbled, would actually cause an identity crisis in you? Then you might actually be looking at an idol. Whether it's a, a certain statement in your bank account or whether it's a career trajectory or whether it's a relationship, it can be all forms of things. It might even be an idol of keeping the status quo. Sure, nobody is literally asking you to bow down today in Vancouver, but we're still being asked to compromise and compartmentalize our faith. You can have your faith so long as you keep it out of politics. You can have your faith so long as it doesn't influence the code of ethics of your school. You can have your faith so long as you don't make any exclusive claims to the truth. You can have your faith so long as you keep it to yourself. And often, if we're honest, we start to step in line, right? We start to see the benefit of these values because it makes life easier in our city. But perhaps we don't resist, we start to step in line because we know the cost of resisting is high. Because then comes Nebuchadnezzar's ultimatum. It's chilling. If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The superlative of destruction awaits if they resist. And at some point, if our faith is real, it is going to be at odds with the culture around us. It's inevitable. We will be required to graciously say no at some point. No, I can't do that. No, I can't accept this contract. No, I, I can't go there because it would be crossing a line for me. There will come a time where we have to navigate the tension of living in this world with respect and gentleness, but nevertheless have to say no. We saw this in chapter one. You might recall Daniel and his friends say, no, we can't eat the king's food. It would defile us. We see it here again. So here's the truth of the matter. If your faith never requires any resistance, it's likely because you've already assimilated too much into culture. If your faith never causes you to question the practices that are going on around you, the values that are being promoted and enforced upon you, then can your faith even be considered real? What is real faith? And why would such a faith require us to critically engage culture and sometimes faithfully resist culture? 
And that's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are so helpful for us. I find their faith quite remarkable. If you think about it, what happened to them, their experience, they're ripped from their land. They're taken from their home. They watched their people systematically killed and starved. They lost it all. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar only took nobles and people of the king's class. These people had wealth and they lost it all and they're relocated to Babylon. They're given a new name, a new culture, and they have to serve in the government that overthrew their people. If you think about it, it would be easy to despair. It would be easy to conclude God has abandoned us. If they looked around, it might even be easy to say, I'm not sure God exists. If they listen to their faithful prophets, the prophets are telling them, this is an act of God's judgment upon Israel's unfaithfulness. So what is it? God has abandoned us. God doesn't exist. God is angry. But they don't draw any of these conclusions. Nebuchadnezzar asks, who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And they say the greatest thing ever. I love this. I hope you memorize this. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. But if not, don't you love that? Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, they fully expected a miracle. They believe God can act. They say God will deliver us. But if not, but if not, we will be faithful without the miracle. They'll be faithful to God even if it requires the flames of death. This is real faith. Their faith is not conditional on what God will or won't do for them. They say we serve and love God for himself and not what we get out of him. We trust God for himself and not for what he gives us. We are faithful to God for God's sake. This is real faith. And if we're honest, we're prone to add some conditions. We too say, but if not, but what follows looks quite different. We say, God will lead me and God can guide me in life, but if not. If God doesn't lead me to the spouse on my timeline, if God doesn't lead me to my career goals, if God doesn't lead me to the places I thought I would go in this life, can I really trust his judgment? Can I really say he has good plans for my life? Is the course he's plotting out for me really for my best. We say, God hears us, he answers our prayers, but if not, if he doesn't answer the prayer on the timeline or the way we are praying and asking him to answer it, should we keep praying? Does prayer make any difference? Does God even listen at all? Is it worth my time? We say God is able to heal and he will heal and we declare he'll heal, but if not, But if not, how good is he really? Is he even active in this world? Does he even care? Because the pain is getting too much, either your own pain or watching the person you love suffer. But if not, we might slowly drift or compromise our faith and eventually let it take a back seat. And in turn, our faith slowly ceases to define who we are and how we live in the world. 
and it'll become easier and easier to assimilate. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they set no such conditions, do they? But if not, we, we will be faithful to God. And this kind of faith is worth more than gold. As one pastor puts it, their faith makes them spiritually fireproof before they ever step into the furnace. And real faith inevitably leads into the furnace. It leads into fiery trials. As the passage continues, Nebuchadnezzar is enraged and he has the furnace heated up seven times hotter than it should be to match his rage. And the people who are tasked with taking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up into the furnace, they die on impact and then into the furnace they go. But they're faithful. They're faithful. Why are they cast into the furnace? They're following God. Many years later, centuries later, the Apostle Peter writes in a letter, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. But sometimes we take the opposite response, don't we? You took a stand for your faith. Maybe you said no to something. Maybe you refused to cross that line. But nevertheless, you took that stand. You were faithful. You're resisting. And then things don't pan out the way you thought they would. Maybe you lose a job. Maybe you get passed over for a promotion again and again. Maybe you have to say no to contracts. Or, or maybe a relationship ends. Or a relationship gets strained or you start getting excluded. Maybe you end up with less money than those around you. A smaller home. A seemingly more difficult time than those who seem to enjoy the benefits of compromising. And something happens, right? It doesn't go the way we think. And we go to God, I was faithful. It's not supposed to go this way. I was following you. Why is this happening? Now, please don't misunderstand me. There's room to lament. There's room to name your hurts, even if it's a disappointment in God. There is room to grieve and to say, this is really hard for me and I'm struggling. And whether it's because you are suffering for your faith or you're just suffering because we live in a broken world where we get hurt, lamenting and grieving is a good and healthy thing. But we should not be surprised as if something strange is happening to us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't wake up thinking, hey, we're going to get thrown into a furnace today. That was surprising. But on the other hand, the fact that taking a stand was costly was not surprising. Sometimes. Sometimes it's not the big ordeal. Sometimes it's not the furnace that is the hardest. Sometimes it's the slow burn of exile. The slow, lasting ordeal that's more effective at weakening our faith and leading us towards assimilation. Can we acknowledge that? The slow day in and day out minutia and monotony, it breeds a sort of apathy in us, a disillusionment, disinterest. And if this takes root in us over time, we start to think to ourselves and maybe to our friends, what difference does my faith really make? And as a result, we quietly conclude, I may as well live like everybody else. And if we do that, we bow down to an idol. We bow down to the story that this life is all you have. 
It's the only life you'll get. So you better make the most of it before you die. Have you heard that narrative? Do you tell yourself that narrative? Do you live by that narrative? If you do, instead of worshiping God, you're celebrating humanity. Instead of trusting in God's power, you're focusing on human limitation. Instead of anchoring your hope on life beyond the grave, you're anchoring your hope on the here and now. But here's where we need to pay attention. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not delivered from the fire, but through the fire. They're not delivered from the fire, but through the fire. The passage continues in verse uh, 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Do you remember his ultimatum? Who's the God who can rescue you from my hand? Now he knows firsthand, the God of Israel, the God who is with his people, even in the furnace, the God who walks with his people, even through the fires. Of course, our passage says this fourth person just appeared like a son of the gods. It's a very you know, amorphous description of the person. But Nebuchadnezzar could tell something was off. He can do math. Three is not the same as four. But there is also something unusual about this person's appearance that made the king say, whoa, what is happening here? But Nebuchadnezzar didn't know who it was. And it's unlikely that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew entirely. But now they know firsthand what Isaiah prophesied well before they were born. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And they're called out of the furnace. They're brought before everybody and everybody can see that the fire had no power over their bodies. In fact, we read in the passage that not even the hair of their head was singed. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. In another passage, he warns the church. He gives us a heads up. This is not going to be easy. You're going to face trials at time. Not a hair on your head will perish. Then we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they, they're experiencing this. They're living this. They're knowing this. But how can Jesus make such promises? Because some of us are bald, and some of us have seen people's heads burned, suffering. Throughout the Gospels, we discover again and again that Jesus faces trials on our behalf. He faces a trial in the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by Satan. He faces an unjust trial before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, before he's passed off to Pontius Pilate and faces a trial before the Roman courts. There he's flogged and spat upon and mocked. He's given a crown of thorns before he faces his ultimate trial, the trial of the cross. In Gethsemane, he looks forward to this trial. And in a way, he sees something horrifying. It causes him to sweat blood. It causes him great agony. What? In one of his parables, he says, God's judgment is 
a fiery furnace. As Jesus looked to the cross, he saw the door of that fiery furnace open up. He knew he was going to face this judgment for us. And he went to the cross. He faced this fiery furnace. And while he is there, bearing our sins in his body, consuming our sins in the fires of God's judgment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus faced every trial for us. Every single trial for us. He went into the ultimate fiery furnace for us to have our sins consumed for us. And because he was faithful to us, we will never be alone in the trials we face. We'll never be alone in the furnaces that we may have to go into. Jesus faced all these trials. He suffered for us. Not because God is cruel, not because God had to find a way to deal with his anger, but as an expression of how deeply God loves us. There has to be justice. There has to be judgment. But God also has the hairs of our head numbered and he loves us and he wants to redeem us. And so he sent his son to bear those sins for us and to be judged for us. So from our vantage point, who was in that furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There's good reason to think it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And even if not, the entire experience points us towards Jesus. But we have to remember, and I want you to hear this, Daniel 3 is not a blueprint. Daniel 3 does not promise you that you'll be delivered out of the fire the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced it. Instead, it shows us we are never alone in the flames because Jesus entered into those places for us and he's in those places with us. Whether you walk out alive or not, you are never alone. Because even if you die, you'll be delivered through fire. Even if you die, you're gonna wake up on eternity's shores. You're gonna wake up in the arms of Christ. You are gonna gain eternal life, your true home. Because not a hair on your head will perish. That's an eternal promise, people, not just an earthly promise. God is able to deliver us. But if not, he has promised us life on the other side of death. See, God has given us a faith that can endure and even flourish in fiery trials because our faith is not in our faith. If you put your faith in the strength or quality of your faith, I guarantee you, your faith is going to let you down. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you completely trust in the object of your faith, Jesus himself who endured these trials for you, you'll find the strength you need to face our lesser trials. Whether they're briefly intense or almost unending in length, they can be endured because Jesus is with us in the flame. But if not, we'll follow Jesus. Because only Jesus can walk with us through exile and only Jesus has the power to bring us home. Or as St. Paul puts it, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Five words. This is real faith. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is the faith that we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this is the faith that can help you endure this exile here on earth. This is the faith that can help you live in a city that's trying to assimilate you into its ways and help you engage it critically without losing who you are. Now, if you're here, you're just exploring faith and you still have questions about faith. And if all of this seems like a little much to you, 
You know, the intensity of the faith or these exclusive claims about God or even the fact that there's a miracle here that I'm not really addressing. I just want to encourage you to look to Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. He declares in verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might not see it at first, but the king's making progress. Do you remember what he said last week in the passage? Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And now he's taking a step further. He's, he's blessing God. He's not just acknowledging God, he's blessing God. And yet he still doesn't give his life to that God, but he's making progress. And as we'll see in our passage next week, he's about to make a massive declaration of faith. And so in the meantime, my encouragement to you is this, keep journeying. Keep journeying. Keep asking questions. But don't give in to the illusion of our culture. We think asking a good question is, is a value in and of itself. That we can pat ourselves on the back because we asked a really good question. But then you never have any intention of actually finding an answer. I would say don't give in to that foolishness. Ask good questions and seek. You'll find. Search after answers. Don't leave those questions unanswered. It takes time before you're ready to faith, for faith sometimes. We see that in Nebuchadnezzar. So I'd say take as much time as you need, but more, no more time than necessary. Because the truth of this passage, it, it should not remain abstract. You can experience it. And if you do, you will never be alone in your suffering and trials again. Because Jesus is with us in the fiery trials always.